0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Event Manager Podcast, Creating Extraordinary Experiences with Klaus Rasted. Klaus is the director of the College of Extraordinary Experiences and also a coach at McKinsey & Company. In this episode, we cover the College of Extraordinary Experiences as well as Klaus's experience in the live action role play world. We talk about curating attendees to create unique experiences rather than accepting all uh, registrations. We talk about using in-person experiences to generate auxiliary revenues. We talk about how breaking social rules is one of the keys to creating productive ideation sessions. We talk about the cost of disruption and how you cannot please everyone. We cover the rise and fall of Klaus's very own pet project at Zoback. LARP Studios and the dangers of over-delivering. We talk about how productivity is more approachable than innovation, and we talk about how reframing challenges can turn them into opportunities. And finally, we talk about how focusing on delight rather than eliminating mistakes can create amazing opportunities for planners and event organizers all around the world. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you're listening, please do consider subscribing and rating this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Event Manager podcast. I am Miguel Nevs, the uh, editor in chief of EventMB. And I'm joined by Dylan Monarchu, the deputy editor of EventMB. And we have Hello. a special guest today, Klaus Rastet, uh, coming to us from Denmark as well. How are you, Klaus? Miguel, so, yeah, you should know by now that never to ask a Dane
1: or a Nordic person in general, how they are, because they'll give you a half-hour answer. It'll be truthful, and you'll end up just as depressed as they are. But apart (laughs) from that, the sun is
0: shining. It's pretty nice. Excellent. My grandfather used to say, never never ask a Portuguese person how they are, because they'll tell you.
2: And I think this is a similar thing.
0: Great. So, so, Klaus, you are the director of the College of Extraordinary Experiences and also a coach at McKinsey & Company. I know you have many other titles and many other experiences, um, but I'd like to start there. Maybe explore a little bit of your creations and your designs. Um, I'd like to start with, with what you've produced and maybe then backtrack a little bit to how we got there. Uh, but tell us a little bit about the College of Extraordinary Experiences and some of the other projects that uh, that you've been proudly involved in.
1: For a moment there, I thought you were going to say, tell us about how you created McKinsey. But sadly, we both know that is uh, that is nothing. To, there's no truth to that. There I'm just a tiny cog in a huge machine. But the College of Extraordinary Experiences is a weird beast. It's a part of professional development part network, part uh, experience design accelerator, part madhouse. And what it is actually is a five-day event, a yearly five-day event, at a 13th century medieval castle in Poland, complete with goblins and a secret dungeon bar and weird goings-on and its own kind of halfway magical universe. So okay. that's the, that's the setting. So if you imagine a castle in Poland with actual secret corridors and everybody dressed up in costume, it feels like you're stepping into a Harry Potter movie. Except this is actually a professional development conference.
0: Interesting. So let's let's give let's give the audio audience a little a little context. So I, um, it's it's aimed at uh, event designers or anybody who works with designing experiences. I believe it, it's actually a, it's
1: one of those weird things where. It's aimed at everybody, because at the end of the day, everybody designs experiences, but it's aimed at the people who do it consciously. So you might find somebody who works as a shaper for Victoria's Secret, actual person who is there. You might find one of the co-founders of Burning Man, actual person who was there. You might find somebody who is a lawyer, or you might find somebody who works as an event professional
2: doing conferences. All of these are real people who have been there.
0: So it sounds like it's
2: kind of a boot camp for people who design other experiences for other people.
1: I think that's a good way of looking at it. And I think to take it a bit further, so I'm not going to get into that because Miguel had some sort of question, but there's an explanation a little down the line that might make sense. But Miguel, first you go.
0: No, I just no. Please continue. I wanted to um, explain to people what the journey looks like once you register, um, and and in terms of the castle and uh, and and what happens to you if you decide to embark on this journey. I know it changes every year, but I think it's interesting to give people a little bit of a an audio narrative of just how different this immersive kind of course can be and how much of an experience it can be.
1: So thank you for that. We don't mind when people say it's different and immersive. That's always nice. Somebody called it the Harvard of experience design, and we were pretty happy with that. So of course, we use that quote all the time. But at its core, the college is a place to meet other people. And it's a place to meet people you would never meet in a setting where you would never meet them talking about things you would never talk about. And underneath that grand sounding kind of three ends is imagine you set down a table. This this was one of our core mental experiments. Imagine you set down a table and that table are you, there's a professional Formula One race car driver, there is a doctor, there is a Hollywood filmmaker and a professional jazz musician. Now, most people when asked, do you want to sit at this table? Do you want to be number six at that table? They'll say, yes, I really want that because that sounds like interesting conversations. Number one, very few people curate that sort of varied audience from different cultures, different backgrounds, different ages, different social groups, different industries. It's rare that the CEO sits between a street artist magician who can't pay his rent and somebody who uh, speaks to plants. Again, real people who've been there. So, So one thing is the curation of interesting and different individuals. But what happens normally if you do that, if you create that dinner party, then they'll look at each other and they'll say, you're too corporate, you're too artsy, you're too young, you're too old, you're too French, you're too whatever, you're too wrong. And they'll be guarded. And what we try to do is we try to have this intense curation of different people from different places, and then we throw them into a weird setting. Because for most of us, 13th century medieval castle in Poland is not our normal habitat. So everybody's a little out of their comfort zone. Then we play around with the social rules a lot, introduce elements that are somewhere between reality and magic. For example, you can meet goblins. There are secret rituals going on. And then this whole cocktail is blended together, which means that when people actually sit down and have that conversation, whether it's at dinner or workshop or 4 a.m. in the morning, in the secret dungeon bar, they actually are open. And instead of saying, you talk to plants, that's weird. They
2: say, you talk to plants. I'm a CEO of a bank. Huh. Interesting. Tell me more. I think that's really interesting, but I want to touch on the curation aspect of it um, because when I was looking, when I was kind of doing the research in preparation for this, I didn't, I didn't see uh, the, the sort of sign-up process and how people get rejected or not based on their fit with... I mean, can you talk about how you curate the audience? Yes. Yes. First off, we don't sell tickets.
1: We have invitations. And an invitation may lead to money-changing hands and somebody actually going. But at its core, you are allowed to request an invitation. And that leads to an interview. Everyone who goes is interviewed uh, with one of us. And to determine, one, is this person a good fit? Like, will they actually have a good time? Or are they just going to uh, waste their time and somebody else's and just be annoying and annoyed, not to the least. So one thing is for like cultural fit and, and do they understand the premise? Answer some practical questions and so about what can I expect and what can't I expect? But also to find out Will they bring something to the table that's interesting and new? So it's not that we have a problem with having more than one type of person. There can be more than one escape room designer, but we don't want too many. And the only way to secure that is by having uh, one-on-one interviews with everybody who
2: participates, because you get a feel for more than just the title.
1: That must one thing be drastically-
2: that's really. really- I would don't, expect don't. that that drastically limits the amount of people that it makes sense to have this kind of an experience for if you have oh, sure. to do one-on-one <laughs> it, interviews for each, each It should be it. said this is like an 80, 90-person event. Okay. And if you're... So, I mean, this is a training program for other people who design experiences, right? So if you're, for example, a corporate event planner who goes to figure out how to design interesting experiences for their sales teams, they're not then going to be able to translate that curated one-on-one interview per participant kind of aspect to when they're trying to apply the lessons that they're learning at this Harvard for experience design, right? That's not what you're teaching them. I think one thing that, that, that we have
1: to, if not least correct and reframe is, this is not so much a place where people come and we teach them. This is a place where people come and we facilitate them meeting each other. Also, we teach them some stuff. We have amazing workshop holders, blah, blah, blah. But the core of the experience is getting people to meet each other in a place where they form new friendships, new alliances, new conversations. So one thing we we usually kind of compare it to is if you have a whole bag of dice and every time a die rolls a six something magic, something happens. Like you have an aha moment or you gain a new skill or or you kind of, you look at the world a little bit differently. And what we try to do is to create an environment where that bag has as many dice in it as possible. So we don't know who will learn what. It's not like a Photoshop 103 where everybody will know how to work in layers afterwards. I mean, mm-hmm. we do those sorts of things, but not for this event. Here, what we do is we put people together And we try to create an atmosphere where they are open to growth or learning. And we don't know what comes out of that. So some people come out and say, I've learned how to be a better father. That happened. Some come out and say, I've learned how to think differently about my business.
0: Some come out and say, I need a new job. Right. Fascinating. I mean, I think you're taking a lot of very brave decisions and and in some ways quite different to most of the event organizers that, that would read and, and would uh, maybe be listening uh, in the way that you're very consciously curating um, and you know not looking for the biggest possible audience. You're looking for a very small, hand-picked audience that kind of works together. And, and I think a lot of people might be asking, "Well, that's very nice, but does, is that profitable? Does it, does it work? Can you really you know, can it really be a sustainable business? It could. I mean,
1: we were, we we had a bit of a, the college's history started as an offshoot of my old company and where we did live action role play events. And that crashed and burned and died a few years ago in flames because it didn't have a solid business model. The college was one of the few events we lifted from that dumpster fire and now survives on its own. And that meant we had to make a transfer from the first year we essentially ran the event with 150,000 euro in minus because they had disappeared in the dying mother company. So we just managed to pull through in 2019 or in, in 20, uh, 2019. And then 2020 was going to be, then we were going to kind of actually start and maybe see a paycheck or not have to be able to hire some people to help with small stuff and then build it from there. And as most people can probably recall, 2020 for a physical event was not the best year to uh, to kind of to, to recoup your losses or build a solid foundation. And we considered going digital, as everybody did, and decided this is not replicable digitally. So we do stuff. We, the three founder or the three uh, kind of the, the three partners who are the core of the organization, we do stuff digitally and do other projects, but the college is at the moment is a physical thing. And that also means we had to postpone our 2021. So the next time you can actually go is September 2022.
0: Okay. But you think it's it's uh, a little bit like virtual events in, in a sense. It's maybe not necessarily sustainable by itself, but if it's part of a bigger ecosystem, it can be a, a healthy part of that.
1: Oh, I, I think it depends on what you mean. Sorry, I actually realized I didn't answer the question. Um, a, a full business ticket to this, which, which is like the standard ticket, costs
2: €7,200. So it's not exactly cheap. But it also our, sounds our, like it's not exactly going to apply to that guy who can't pay his rent.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. no. That, that's one thing that is that we have that we, we at least find interesting because of its transparency, that we have several ticket categories and we curate them very tightly. So we have the full business tickets, which are people like us. Then we have academic tickets, which are people who are associated with colleges, universities, schools, et cetera. We have a limited number of those. We have a limited number of alumni tickets that are discounted because we want some culture bearers. Then we have a limited number of full scholarship tickets, people who can't even pay hundred euros and who kind of hitchhike to the castle basically. But who add something by being there, and then some part way scholarship tickets. So so we have a full gamut of different types of tickets and different price ranges for different people, and that helps a lot with the curation. Even though, of course, I mean, let's be honest, we have been tempted to say, okay, we've got a solid brand, we've got a lot of interest. Let's just sell ninety tickets at seven thousand two hundred, and then look at those six hundred thousand euros that's on the account and say, oh, this wasn't too bad for a five day event, we can relax now, but we don't do that. Why not? Because it's not the event we want to create. Maybe, maybe when we get to a point where we, we are so overwhelmed with people looking for applying at the full business price, that we could do that, we will consider doing a secondary sort of conference or doing a second one We've talked to doing one in the U S but, uh, but we haven't reached that point yet.
2: Okay. okay. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't, for example, facilitate at a specific companies like sales retreat or something to that.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. But that's not the college. No, 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 no. Shit. We do all sorts of stuff. Uh, okay. I mean, <laughs> I just, yesterday was, was teaching uh, consultants in the middle East storytelling and, and uh have done like strategic offsites and have done company team building and have done skill training. And no, no, we do all sorts of weird stuff. And, and we've done, I mean, a couple of years ago, we helped IKEA, their shopping center division with running their big global annual event uh, for all the, the shopping center bosses from all over the world. So no, no, we do this sort of stuff, but that's a different event. So
0: right.
1: the college is both a company and an event. And it's the event that gets the focus because the other stuff is is where we, for example, we do some consulting out of that. And we do some smaller events and we do some targeted stuff. So somebody mm-hmm. comes to us and says, Can you make an interesting corporate retreat for a hundred people or take our sales division to the moon a new way? Sure, we can do that. But that's not the event we're selling.
2: Right. Well that's I mean, that side of the business is kind of what I think I'm I'm really interested in because obviously the audience for this is B2B events. So I'm always thinking about how what we're talking about could apply to them. When you do those facilitated team retreats and when you do those facilitated corporate events, those internal events, that's still within the context of the live action role-playing, right? The LARPing.
1: No, no. Okay. No, it's not. Uh, But it's, of course, we use tricks from that and experience from that, but but we don't work in that space anymore. After that, that dream, I mean, I spent... (laughs) Most of my adult life, on building that company, and after that crashed and died and left me with a little over a million dollars in personal debt, I needed to find a way to, A, get out of that debt, which was not going to be easy, and also to, to take my talents elsewhere and do something else. So, okay. of course, I take that past with me, and we use things and ideas and concepts, but we don't do big corporate live-action role-play events. I mean, if somebody asked me i might I might do one, but it's not what
2: we kind of brand ourselves as. Okay, so what's the I mean, in terms of the 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 consultative advice for that kind of an audience, what do you bring in from that storytelling background and that larping background to to apply to? A That's ton possible. of, of uh, first off, this
1: kind of loose creativity, which is something everybody likes to say they are. Most people are not. And the ones who say they are, they're usually really not either. So so we are. No, of course, that would be just bullshit to say, but, but bringing in that sort of uh, different way, not so much out of the box thinking, because what does that even mean? But an access to so many different toolkits that we can effortlessly shift between mental models and say, okay, one moment we're looking at a problem using Martin Seligman's PERMA model from positive psychology. One moment we're using techniques from Nordic live action role-playing to create group think feel. One moment we're using another thing to break down silos in a company. So we have this insane toolbox that comes from so many different places, that it's very rare we come to a place where they've seen all our tools before. And then you'll you'll know this, you you come out into a company, and they're like, oh, another disk profile into real life. Yeah, no, we'll do something a bit different. Then they're like, wow, I never thought you could do it that way. And another company would have the exact opposite
2: reaction. So would one of the tools that you mentioned um, be adventure methodology? Because I remember from your last interview with Miguel on LinkedIn, um, it seemed like you had been applying this really interesting uh, methodology of of learning for people in an academic setting, wherein you were taking sort of general educational fields and then applying that through hands-on learning, couching the education in kind of like a super engaging, interactive first-person narrative that they would... Play through as a character within that narrative and kind of yes, embedded yes. in a memorable we, we life a lot, experience. We use a lot of,
1: of play and a lot of simulation and a lot of stuff that is, is kind of on the border of role playing or simple role playing, but without being like the big heavy stuff that we used to do. Okay. So, so, just to give you an example, one of the very simple uh, workshops I do, or, or shall we call it a simulation, is a half hour exercise where take like somewhere between six and 10 people, and they have to pretend that they are the advertising agency, rockstar media. And they live within the world of stock photos. We all know stock photos, like right these these pictures of people in crisp suits and two big smiles and more diversity than is real, even though we'd all like it to be true. We all know these photos. They have a certain kind of feel and a look to them. So what we do here is we put them into the world of stock photos, inspired by an old Finnish role-playing event. And in the world of stock photos, there are three social rules that are different from, from our normal lives. One is everybody's the best. Everything is the best idea. Everybody's just awesome. Number two, there's no irony. There's no subtext. There's no innuendo. Everybody says exactly what they mean. And number three is everything's a world of big gestures and happy smiles and hands on shoulders and looking at that screen and going, wow, and woo, and and over the top body language. Now, if you take a group of people, for example, it could be a sales team. It could be a group of CEOs in a network. It could be a leadership group. And you let run them through that simple exercise where they're supposed to be rockstar media for half an hour and have somebody either myself or 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 a co-facilitator or even a participant play a fictional client who comes in and wants an advertising campaign for his new dating app then seeing them come to action and seeing them developing ideas and bouncing off each other and having a ton of fun is both fun to watch but also they come out of it usually and have this like wow Why are our ideation sessions not like this? It was like, I just wasn't afraid of voicing ideas and it just kept coming and we came up with good stuff. It was like, well, that's true. It's because we changed the social rules. So instead of sitting in a room, looking at each other, trying to come up with ideas and constantly kind of beating them to death, you were in a situation where everything was awesome. And that of course meant that you felt alibi to come up with
2: with new and fresh ideas. Like, okay, oh, so uh, we could use that. It sounds like you were able to kind of distill the norm-breaking benefits of role-playing without the lift of creating an entire narrative for it to happen within the context of. You, know, you, yes, you were able to yes. implement a few social rules in a scenario that people could easily follow without creating this whole kind of like, uh, you know, costumed theatrical component to it. Which is I yes, yes, exactly much more that. Applicable. <laughs> Use some of that.
1: Yes, right. exactly that. And for example, for the event industry, where some people will be familiar, Paul and I were were the closing keynote speakers at the EMEC conference in 2017 in Granada. And we also did a, a master class workshop on experience design. And part of that was the participants themselves created a choo-choo train tourist experience where we had 60 participants choo-chooing around as like one big caterpillar train in the common area, uh, pretending to visit the Andes and waving at people. And the rest of the conference, of course, thought, these people must have been mad. Were there drugs in that room? But the people who were there, a lot of them came out and said, wow, I've been in this industry for 20 years, and I just learned a lot of new stuff. Of course, some people came out and said, you are the worst. I will never talk to you again. But that's also sometimes the cost of disruption. I guess you can't please everybody. We at least do not manage to do so. Some (laughs) might have that skill, but we are not among them.
0: So, Klaus, you've, you've talked a little bit about the work that you do and, and the, the College of Extraordinary Experiences. And I know you do a lot of other things, but can you tell us a little bit about how, how you got here? How does Klaus Rasted become Klaus? Uh, because I think a lot of people might be curious, uh, you know, reading through your your your, your LinkedIn profile. I, you know, you've done a lot of different education, uh, but it's not like you have degrees in psychology and lots of other things. Uh, you you you've had a lot of really interesting experiences. How how does how does one get there?
1: So Klaus Rosted started out like so many other uh, privileged white able bodied middle class from a nice country uh young men with going to high school and starting at the university and then at some point uh klaus realized the university was actual work and then got behind on his studies and when i was 23 and and this was my second attempt at university studying uh i ran out of stipend money denmark you get paid to to uh to study, which I know for a lot of our American listeners is like, whoa, let's let's talk about that instead of all this event stuff. But I ran out of stipend money and I needed to either get serious about my studies or do something else. And then I had I'd been doing role-playing events and had role-playing as a major passion for many years and sat on nonprofit boards and organized huge events. And I thought, what if I could make a career out of that? And then I dropped out of the university. And that was the best decision I ever made. Uh, fast forward 15 years to having built the world's biggest live action role play company and doing insane events at insane locations. And we've gotten worldwide media attention for a Harry Potter event we did. And, and, and we're building something new. And, and I've, I've been one of the pioneers in that space forever and ever. And it sadly all came crashing down in March of 2019, because for all of my uh, skills at various things, it turns out that building a business without a foundation of business is pretty hard. And when you learn those foundations too late, then you may have already been been too deep into the quagmire. And I was definitely there. So I went out and propped it up by borrowing money from my network personally. I borrowed more than a half a million euros um, from my network as a as an individual, and in the end, it all came crashing down. It was built too much on long term dreams and on long term plays, and not enough not enough paying rent today to sell the house tomorrow.
0: Basically, sounds like a, a classic cash flow issue that I think a lot yes. of event organizers also may not so, always master. But but and, you know, I, I just, mean. And,
1: just to give one example of that that will make some of our listeners groan in, uh, in recognized pain is when we were at our absolute worst, We co-op, at the end, we cooperated with an American uh, big company that was doing a, a launch of their new universe. And they were supposed to, they hired us for, for that first event. And then they're supposed to hire us for a bigger event on the West Coast of the U.S. And that would really help our cash flow, plus bring in some money. But they were so happy with the first event that they made the second event postpone that to do something even bigger. But that meant that the cash flow it was going to bring us suddenly was not there. So part of the thing that at the end made us kind of go from near death to death was being too successful at delivering. (laughs) <laughs> Which the irony was not uh, lost on anyone, but uh, it's more fun now than it was that
0: delivering, oh yeah. But um, I mean, thank you for sharing that. I think it's always interesting to learn from errors and, and I really appreciate you sharing that openly. It's not uh, a wound I want to pick necessarily. Um, but I, I noticed, you know, you had recently you you did this series on LinkedIn with a hundred innovation keynotes, which I think was was really interesting because you you didn't wait for anybody to hire you, you just went out and and did. The keynotes and recorded them yourself and and there was a lot of learnings in the process and feel free to talk a little bit about that if you want but i what i kind of read into that
1: in a hundred days exactly one a that day was, right? that was the that was the important part which nearly killed me was and, doing and that's what
0: i kind of <laughs> wanted to get to i find that part of your success uh is also that you're quite efficient Right. And it's it's not like you sat around and waited to plan all these in in minutiae and got the perfect camera. You went out and did stuff and made sure that there was output for those hundred days. Is that part of how you've achieved the success that you have? And yes, okay, the company crashed and burnt, but you did some pretty amazing stuff in the meantime. Is that efficiency part of what makes it work? So I
1: love that you asked that because one of the things I'm doing right now as we speak is pivoting yet again, because for the last half year or so, I've tried to kind of establish myself in the innovation space as an innovation guy, wrote a book on innovation October and my book number 30, by the way, and uh, and said, I do innovation, kind of tried to recast my past in an innovation oriented way, which was pretty easy. And I had a lot of people say, oh, innovation, Klaus, that's you, and you're so good at that, and out-of-the-box thinker, and companies should have you on speed dial, and wow, that's such a smart move. It feels so right, which was really nice, really nice validation, really warms the heart. However, turns out that the amount of people who actually wanted to hire me who said, I want that, was pretty low. And even the ones who did were mostly for somebody else, for a division, for a group, for a class, for listeners. So I thought, okay, what am I doing wrong here? So then I thought, okay, if I'm not selling innovation, because if that's either too broad or too vague, what about productivity? I have a decent track record there. I've done more than a thousand live events. I've done 34 books. You'll notice there have been four books since October. Um, I've done podcasts, I've done blogs, I've done all sorts of stuff. So I can point to, as you say, this being quite efficient. What if I try to sell that instead? And it turns out that a lot of people came out and said, ooh, interesting some of course said you should not work in this space class this is not for you but luckily i can ignore <laughs> that
0: well, said, it's always no, no, good to have people that think else. opposite ways right to, to yeah. check everything
1: but it turned out that quite a lot of people said i want this i personally want to learn your tricks and then i did because that's what i do i did a test i said okay on monday i'm doing my first test webinar and i got 45 signups. And 45 signups, of course, for some people, that's nothing. For some people, that's a lot. The interesting thing was that one third of them were second uh, level LinkedIn connections. So it was people I wasn't connected to, and I was doing this on LinkedIn. It was people who just saw it and thought, this sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. And then after doing that, and, and having identified a bunch of, of like factors that I feel Make me more productive than most people. Uh, I've, I've tried to, f- I've now formalized that and have just launched my first actual paid four week course on getting shit done. It's called The Art of Getting Shit Done and it's mm-hmm. teaching you seven different types of powers named after animals because it might as well be fun. So I'll yeah. be teaching people <laughs> the monkey powers of experimentation and the elephant
2: powers of assistance and yada, yada. Well, at the risk of sounding selfish, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really interested in what some of those tricks are. And I really, I want to return to something you were saying earlier about incorporating the storytelling aspect of experience design. I've I'm, I'm kind of fixated on this concept of norm breaking as part of your experience design philosophy. And um, I think it's really interesting because in the example that you gave, uh, it sounds like those uh, you know, the sales team, for example, that, that you were talking about would normally have felt inhibited by the existing norms and this sort of expectation that, you know, they, I don't know, come to the table with something really compelling off the bat that might have inhibited them from saying something compelling if they were not confident in their idea. So can you talk a little bit more about the effective norms on inhibiting, you know, that kind of progress within those meetings and how norms sort of play into norm and norms and norm breaking kind of play into the experience design philosophy you have
1: gladly gladly so
2: for for the productivity course
1: which is i said right now it's like it's four mondays two hours a piece so it's not a big thing it's more of an intro it's not going to solve everybody's problems but what i've identified i I simply sat down and looked and said okay what is it that makes me different and some of it is some other people have that one thing or another and I've, i've found out at the end 28 different factors and a lot of them are about norms very few of them are about just being better a lot of them are about thinking differently and and part of that is some of the really big ones are redefining how you frame things which is a huge huge thing how you you give us an example yes yes i will give you a Great example from recently. I've been, I was the editor of a book that's coming out here in July, which is from the Global Institute for Thought Leadership, which I'm lucky enough to be one of the founding partners of. And it's called Winning the War for Talent 11 Insights from the Global Institute for Thought Leadership. Now, when we first started in the group, started talking about doing that book, some of the others who most of them are published authors said, oh, but it's going to be hell to have like streamline our message and our language and make sure everybody's on board because they thought we're going to write a book, a group, and it's kind of a we message and it's a we voice and it's we style. And I said, or we could also just everybody write a short chapter. And then I'll write an intro that ties it all together. And as it says in that intro, it says, this is not a album. This is a mixtape. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you don't need to edit because everybody's voice should be different. So you don't need to make it coherent. Actually it being incoherent or, or not the same is a strength, not a weakness. Number two, you don't need to make sure that it's all in the same in the same voice because again, not only the message, but the voice should be different. The style should be different. Suddenly, you can just plug in those eleven texts, write the foreword, write the afterward, and boom, you're done.
2: That's so, so fascinating.
0: You, you gave a, you threw away the social norm of this book has to be uniform, make sense, be written in the same voice, and you know use punctuation in the same way. You said you don't actually have to do that. You can you just actually have don't.
1: yeah. And, and, and I'll give another example. It's from the, the live action role playing days, but it's such a fun one. This was from our very first Harry Potter event at that castle. And the, the, uh, the participants are coming and me and our location boss, Bruta, we're walking through the castle, double checking everything. Because of course, even though the castle made promises, things were not ready. So we're m- manually dragging uh, beds into places and yada, yada. And at some point we have this, this area in one of the towers where there are three rooms connected and there's supposed to be 12 beds, but there are only 11. And there's not space for another bed. But we have 12 participants signed up to live in this like triple space. And there's no more room. We're just like, what do we do? I said, don't worry. I said, what what do you mean, don't worry? We can't fit another space. Like, what's your plan? I said, no, no, no. Here under, there's a stair here. And under that stair is a small space where you can put a mattress and we'll call that the Harry Potter sleeping <laughs> space because you sleep <laughs> under the stair. And Baruta looks at me like I'm an idiot he says, Klaus, our players are not idiots. They're not going to buy that. Like, what, what are you thinking? I said, Baruta, come and learn. Not only will they, will they buy it, they will love it. They will fight over it. And he says, I, I don't believe you. So the two first players show up who are going to be in that room and I tell them with a broad smile, so say, hey, welcome, guys. I see you in room K-12. Now, since you're the first here, one of you gets to, to sleep under the stair. There's one in this whole castle. There's one sleeping space under the stair. And you two get to decide which of you two gets it. And they're like, oh, that's
2: so cool. That's so cool. That's so cool.
1: And Boruta just looked at it like his, his illusions about reality
2: crumbled. <laughs> I think that's really interesting. And the what... What's really interesting about the norm breaking example um, that encourages sort of discord and a lack of alignment. A lot, I know a lot of team building activities are designed in order to create alignment. And that's definitely um, when people are looking for culture fit and they're vetting for that kind of thing. Alignment is sort of the name of the game. But we had, a, we had an event on Wednesday um, in which Zhao Chu. Uh, who's the CEO of Run the World, was talking in a diversity panel about the value of diversity and the value of differing opinions and breaking the pattern and breaking the mold and sort of allowing for different people to be themselves. And, and this is really kind of resonating with my memory of that because it sounds like what you're saying is sort of along the same lines in the sense that there's a value to having discordant opinions and subjecting things to the force of the better argument. And I, I think that's one thing,
1: but... That's, of course, the thing, and I agree completely with that, because that's been proven now, without a doubt, that diversity of culture of opinion makes simply for better things in many ways, apart from it sounding moral and nice. However, this when I talk about the framing, it's mostly a matter of using framing as a productivity tool. So imagine that we have all these standards we try to keep, whether it's how our lawns look when our mother-in-law visits, or it's how our offices are when our bosses are there or all these sorts of things that we do because they are expected of us. And a lot of that stuff can be changed. That's one of the 28 tricks is you, if you reframe how it's presented, then a weakness can become a strength, just like a strength can become a weakness. And by reframing the task, suddenly, sometimes the task no longer exists. And suddenly instead of having to spend an hour or 10 hours doing a task, if you've reframed it so it no longer exists, well, then you're suddenly pretty productive because you managed to do what other people spend 10 uh, 10 hours doing, you just managed to do it because you framed it differently. So I'm completely with you on the diversity angle, but here it's more an example of how to use a tool for productivity that's actually not about productivity
2: in itself. It's a kind of resourcefulness in. <laughs> I was gonna say it's kind of a resourcefulness in bullshitting, but the reality oh, he's is <laughs> like... no, no, it's true. But there's also there's a thin
1: line between philosophy and bullshit. Is there? And
2: I don't think anybody knows where that line is. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I've read some philosophy that didn't seem like bullshit. But... <laughs> I, I I used to study
1: philosophy at the university. I'll say yeah. that the, the, the line is sometimes very thin indeed, and it's much more about who presents it than what is actually there. I
0: think that's um, fair. Which is a, but, a reframing in itself as well, right? If you, if you don't know who's presenting something, or if that person is presented in a different way that you're expecting, then does that make them more believable, more credible, or, or not? I think there's, there's a game to play there as well.
1: Exactly. And I'll give you a different example, which is not about reframing, but which is one of the other tips that I I, I give people, which is about uh, strengthening the arm and sharpening the axe. George Washington, apart from being the first president of the U.S., has this famous quote attributed to him, like, if he was supposed to cut down a tree and he had five hours, he'd spend four hours sharpening the axe. Now, we can all appreciate that, that the, you need to plan and you need to practice and all this sort of thing. Well, that's, that's one part. That's true. We all know this. But another part is is what I call strengthening the arm, is that when I got to the university, I had it easier than most of my fellow university people when it came to reading all this text, because I was used to reading 10, 15 books of fiction per month since I was a teenager. And of course, reading all that science fiction and fantasy, which I did, meant that when I got to the point that I needed to read Maurice Malopontis, uh The Aesthetic Experience, or St. Kierkegaard, or whatever we were reading, I had a pretty strong reading skill. So my reading was simply faster than most of the others, not because I trained to read university stuff, but because I just read a lot of fiction.
0: You'd exercised your reading muscle quite a bit, exactly. right? I think... Uh... And-
1: and that meant when I needed it, it was suddenly, it was actually pretty damn strong. And that yeah. gave me a, a huge advantage in high school as well. Just being able to, we did one of these, these tests in high school. With the, I remember that one of the first weeks about reading comprehension, how you scored on this. Did you understand 100 words per minute or 500 or whatever it was. And my reading level at that point, my reading speed was off the chart. It was literally over the maximum yep. that you could score. Because I'd read all these things that had nothing to do with school. Yeah.
0: Well, so I wanted to kind of bring that back to our listeners, to event managers, to the events world. Uh, and I know you you organize events, or you're you're part of the you know team that organizes events, or it's part of what you do. Um, but. Could you tell me, you know, are there any kind of frustrations that you have when you organize events, uh, when you come oh, yes. into a, a venue or, oh, or something oh, like yes. that, and something yes. that you could maybe give people some advice on if there's a reframing or anything that that could help in that sense? Yes,
1: uh, there is one. It and and I will now speak directly to you, dear listeners. Many of you, not all, many of you spend so much time making sure there are no mistakes instead of making sure that there's amazing stuff. You try to make sure that everything's tight, everything's on schedule, everything works, everything is smooth, that the production value is high, instead of focusing on the experience. Because production value is something you can see. Everybody can see if there's a big screen Everybody can see if the chairs are nice or the food is good or all these sorts of things. They're easy to see. And they're even more easy to see when they fail. But at the end of the day, people will forgive a lot of stuff if the core experience is strong. So instead of spending so much energy on making sure there are no mistakes, spend more on giving people some delight. That's number one thing for event organizers. And I've seen this, over and over and it's in the whole ecosystem i've heard of sponsors chewing out their event organizers for forgetting to put the this lunch was sponsored by signs on the tables is that really what the event is about no (laughs) so that's the one thing is is be less afraid of mistakes and focus more on delight because then people will forgive the mistakes the second is the amount of things that are done the way they are done without anybody questioning them. Oh my bloody God. (laughs) Whenever I talk to experienced event, the young ones or the new ones, they're not a problem because they know that they're new in the game, but the ones who have like 10, 15, 20 years of experience, they come in with this attitude of they know it all. They've done it all. And if you say, Oh, Hey guys, I I come from a little bit of different background. Do you want a tip or two? Like, yeah, like you could teach us anything. And then I say, you know what, you're right, I probably can't. Uh, by the way, when I looked at the bathroom, uh, I noticed that you'd run out of flyers there. Like, what do you mean flyers in the bathroom? Yeah, I, I sat down and had my bathroom experience, and and there was no reading material, no flyers. So I guess people have taken it already, right? What, what? There's no reading material in the bed. Ba- People are in the bathroom. They're not at the conference. Like, oh, so your experience stops at the bathroom. How interesting. They're like, wait wait a minute, wait a minute. What are you saying? Are you saying that the bathroom experience could be part of the conference experience? Yeah. Oh, 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 maybe you could teach us something. And that sort of thing. That's all over the bloody place. And it's not like I'm super smart or, or super insightful. You can get a lot of this from taking... A random participant or somebody take five college students and sit them down and ask them to think of stuff that they don't that they don't think anybody will accept and you'll kind goes brilliant. back
0: to the reframing right. You need to be able to look at something in a slightly different way. Uh, not necessarily that you're more qualified uh, in any one specific thing, but it's just being able to look at it in a different way.
1: Yes, and the reality is there's so much so much ego thrown against each other out there. Mm -hmm. There's so many things that are kind of these, yeah, but I've done
0: this for 16
1: years. Well, that's great.
0: Yeah. I mean, in in defensive event planners, uh, being one or having been one myself, there is value in having something that was planned last year, right? Having a blueprint for the event, right? And if you're recreating the wheel every year or every time you do it, it's really hard, right? Having what happened last year as a guide... Is makes things much more easy to do, like much, much more doable. But it also traps you in that you just don't make decisions or you make decisions because it was done that way in the past and you don't really rethink things or don't really force yourself to think why that may be.
1: But notice what you did there, Miguel.
0: And you're nice and
1: you're friendly and you're open, but notice what you did. I gave an example of let's try incorporating the toilet experience in our event design. And your corresponding one was, well, if we're going to change everything, <laughs> then that's going to be tricky. And that's what happens because psychologically we go there. Somebody says, well, okay, let's not make everything different, but maybe we put funny hats on the people in the, in the intro. And then somebody else say, well, I'm all for innovation, but if we're going to just completely throw out the playbook, then Mama's gonna get herself a new pair of angry eyes. I'm like, okay, we're not gonna forget about the hat thing, and then it never comes up again because we what? do that even when even when safe and fun and among friends, we kind of we take yeah. suggested ideas for change, and then we turn them into these scenarios where they're a hundred times bigger.
0: Yeah, yeah and I'm sorry I, for
1: calling you out on it, but I, I feel it no, serves perfect
0: I think it definitely serves a purpose and I, and I hate to be the defensive one and I really try not to be, but being in a new experience myself as, as the relatively new editor in chief, you know, I'm learning all sorts of processes. I'm, I'm understanding how the business works and I ask a lot of stupid questions and, I'm not afraid to ask those questions, but sometimes it's good to ask questions and to stop processes and go, hey, let's let's see if this works or why is this working this way. And other times I actually end up stopping and, and breaking things because it's like, ah, okay, that was actually there for a reason. And that, that sort was, of yeah. works. And
1: that happens too. Oh, that happens too. And I, I think a lot of it is this, this mindset of on one hand, experience counts. Experience really counts when somebody comes to me and says, Klaus, could we not do it this way? Then I'll say, ah, this is number 240 time. I have this argument. Let me run through the thing that will get you to where I am. So there is something for that. On the other hand, and then I ran into this recently, and I thought, why, why have I never done this? Was somebody said, when we hire new people for our companies, the first thing we do is we spend time getting them to understand how things work here. We all do that. It's part of recruiting, right? Part of onboarding. Mm-hmm. How many people stop up and say, okay, you're starting here now. What are things that you think are weird or should be changed?
0: Yeah. I think That's I've a, seen this example a number of times. It's that idea like you hire smart people and you should listen to why you think they're smart before
2: kind of making them fit into your box and then yeah, yeah. listening you to You can them. always
1: crush them later.
2: <laughs> yeah, and as it pertains to events, and as it pertains to the bathroom example, I think it's really just about understanding who your stakeholders are and having a little customer service-oriented attitude towards processing feedback and listening to them and listening to what they want and taking on their advice and their interests and what they're saying to you and learning to interpret that into you know learning to, learning to mine your interactions with whoever your client is or your customer for. That feedback that's going to improve the experience for them, definitely. And sometimes just
1: trying out stuff and, and making sure that it's not that uh, problematic, that it's it's um, that that you don't burn down the farm if you fail. I mean, mm-hmm. let's say we take this conference and we okay, we now suddenly do a design for the toilet experience, and it turns out people feel that was a bit much, and they like their freedom there. They don't want Miguel's face staring at them saying. What are three takeaways you've had so far? Tell somebody when you come out of the toilet. um, Maybe they think that's a bit too much. Then you don't do it again. Then you do something different. Then you laugh at it. So, So I think that one thing that is really, really hard to build, but is worth its weight in gold and platinum, is a culture of experimentation. And everyone talks about that. Very few people have it. What they have is a culture of, Experimentation until things work,
0: and then they stop. That's really interesting. It's that design thinking, right? You 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 got to the process has to keep evolving. You can't just you can't just experiment once and they'd be like, okay, we experimented, and this is what we came out with, and and that's it. And now we stick with this. Yeah,
1: and that's just that happens over and over. And and on one hand, people will gladly say, well, but we've done this for seventeen years, and it's worked, so we're not going to change it. On the other hand, if somebody says, but what about 18 years ago? Oh, then it was different. Well, so maybe now is maybe now we should try it new. It's it's this this weird duality that allows us to function also makes it very hard for us sometimes because we yeah. need to embrace opposing truths. Embrace, not abrace,
0: embrace. <laughs> Excellent. Klaus, uh, we're going to wrap up here, but I have mean, been a real pleasure to talk to you. And I think um, we talked about very different things to what we talked about last time. So uh, I'm sure we could have you on the guest multiple times uh, on the show, multiple times. Um, what I want to ask you is, is what we're asking all our guests and hopefully we'll connect the dots soon is if you could recommend someone that we should have on the podcast and remember the event manager podcast uh, linked to event MB and really for event managers all over the world. Who, in your mind, would be somebody really interesting to, to have as a guest? I mean,
1: if, there are several people I could recommend as guests. Paul Bulencha, my partner in crime, is, is a no-brainer. Of course, I will recommend Paul because he's far out. He has interesting insights. He's dreadfully smart, and he's the best out-of-the-box thinker I've ever encountered. So if, if, if you can get him, it will go weird places, but it will be interesting. So he is awesome. definitely a definite recommendation. And if you're looking for somebody who is, is very uh, hands-on changing the world in a way that makes sense, then I would, I would uh, invite uh, Elena Rodriguez Blanco, who works with sustainable tourism and sustainable kind of uh, experience design and mm-hmm. is a, a rising star. And that's not because she's a low star, it's because she's a big star that's just going up and is getting on these top influential thinkers and top women in business sort of things and is, is really, really a strong voice for both event design, but especially sustainability as well.
0: Thank you, great recommendations. We'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely ask you for contact details and hopefully get them and connect the dots for everybody. Klaus, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being with us today. And uh, is, is there any um, website, anything you want to leave the listeners with if they want to find out what you're doing, sign up for your courses, where where should they go to?
1: So, I mean, I, I'm one of those weird people. There is only one Klaus Lustig, for better and worse. And I have a pretty solid digital footprint. So so Google Google me and you'll find a rabbit hole of stuff that is both interesting and not interesting and really, really weird. Maybe some of it's even useful, but a good place to start is take a look at one of the 100 keynotes in 100 days. If you don't like one of those. Yeah, they're they're on LinkedIn, they're on YouTube. If you don't like one of those, then you're probably not gonna wanna hear me talk about other stuff.
0: (laughs) That's a great (laughs) entrance into the Klaus world. I like it. Thank you very much. Wrap up there. Us. it's been a pleasure uh thank you very much on behalf of event MB, uh and we'll see you soon see you soon thank you thank you for listening to this edition of the event manager podcast please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts for the latest news and the best articles on technology and innovation in the event industry head over to eventmb.com